Welcome to Contents May Vary. I'm Angie Fiedler-Sutton, talking to geeky people about geeky things. I'm a proud fangirl geek with pieces published in Stage Directions, Den of Geek, The Mary Sue, and more. As fans of my website already know, on June 21st, 2022, I participated in a fundraiser for Alzheimer's Association called The Longest Day. On this day, I live-streamed interviews from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. to help raise funds for research. One of the people I interviewed that day was Sean Kowalty. Bear with the audio. In order to stream it live, I was using a system that was still fairly new to me, so he comes in a bit weak on his side. Next up is Sean Kowalty. Did I get that right? Yay! Yeah, 100%. Yay! Um, he is a theater opera director, video puppet, and mask designer based in Los Angeles, specializing in creating immersive worlds and experiences. He is the artistic director for Rogue Artists Ensemble. Uh, welcome aboard to uh, Contents May Vary, the podcast, and the longest day. Thank you so much. Since you probably aren't very familiar with my podcast, uh, it actually started as a theater podcast. I spent about 20 years in Kansas City doing theater with community theater there and other arts organizations. I've done everything from box office to direct, as one does when you're involved in community theater. In fact, the, the reason this fundraiser is happening is that I have, was a theater minor at Park College in my undergrad, now Park University, and my theater teacher, Marsha Morgan, who became a, a good friend later in life, developed Alzheimer's and passed away. So one of the things I like to talk about is I like to do origin stories and how you got where you are and why do you do what you do. So kind of tell me how you got involved in theater in the first place. What made you realize that this was something that you, you know, actually could do for a living versus, you know, the sometime occasional Mm. thing. And what about it draws you? That's a lot. That's a big question. So I grew up in uh, Southern California. I'm, I'm fourth generation Los Angelino. And essentially, when I was a kid, we, we were living at the time in Orange County. I was around three. And we went to a swap meet. And my parents allowed me to pick a toy at the swap meet. And the only thing I wanted was this ratty old marionette that was there and I was fascinated with it and so they bought it for me and it became like the thing I wanted to play with and my mom being crafty and my father being pretty resourceful it wasn't too long until they were helping me make my own puppets until they had built my first puppet theater and it was what I what I loved doing I grew up at the time that the Muppets were on and you know really on reruns I remember watching the Muppet show in the morning I also remember, you know, profound experience going to see The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth in the theater and the original Little Shop of Horrors film. And I think all of those things, you know, led me to feel that puppetry, even as a young person, puppet was a way that I could explore and tell stories and with uh, others in a way that was super meaningful to me. You know, combined things that I loved, it combined performative elements and crafting and all all these things. So really, you know, I I feel like I've been a puppeteer, a puppet maker since I was just a kid. And um, in high school and middle school, I remember doing performances with other students that included puppetry as an element. So at that time, I started to think less about puppetry as a pure form and more of puppetry as a tool in which we can tell stories with. So even now, I don't think myself a puppeteer or a puppet designer first. I call myself a, a storyteller or a director because I think one of my tools in my tool bag is puppetry. 
Mm-hmm. Let's see. So then zooming ahead in college, I went to UC Irvine and got to um, spend the summer taking a puppetry course at Tisch in New York. And the work in, at UC Irvine, which ended up being pretty experimental and was uh, really where Bogardus Ensemble was born. That's where the founding members went to school as undergrads and where we came together and first started creating. And we were graduating, deciding whether or not, you know, what we were going to do and how, how, what our lives were going to be. We decided at the time that we were going to keep the company going. And that's where we formed officially as Bogardus Ensemble. And that was in 2004. And so it's been almost 20 years at Rogue. And since then, I've had the pleasure of working with the company all these years. Super proud of the work we've done. And other than my Rogue hat, I now have become a freelance designer and director. Was years ago, the, the question of how do you know when you can make a living, I think mm. is the question, or how, how did I? Well, that moment where you realized this was something more than quote unquote, just a hobby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I never thought of it as a hobby. I've always thought of it as a deeply... I, I can't extract that part of myself. Mm-hmm. And I guess I've been fortunate to always work in this field. So ev- even as a young person, I was directing, teaching, work, building puppets, doing freelance work, crafting for people. You know, I've sort of always had it a part of me. But about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago now, I did a uh, residency in Brazil and spent several months there studying and learning a few different cultural aspects in Brazil. And when I came back, there was this choice where the job I had uh, as, as my, as my quote-unquote day job, that, that job was shifting a little bit. And I decided to quit. I decided to quit, and I thought back to a conversation I had with one, they said, have you ever really tried to suffer for you, the thing you love, you know, and make it work against all odds? And um, taking that leap and letting go of what, you know, small, consistent income I had was a leap. And it definitely yielded a few, you know, years that were challenging. But now, you know, I feel like I'm on the other side of it mostly. And certainly things have been challenging during the last, few, you know, two, three years. Yeah, so, pandemic, for, for some reason. <laughs> yeah, for some reason. Well, so many things were impacted, but theater was really impacted. And yeah. so it changed a lot of the way in which I was working and the sorts of projects I was taking and. Now, how would you define what an artistic director is? It's different for every company. So I look at my role within Rogue Artists Ensemble as a, you know, as, as someone that essentially shepherds the artistic process, but that all voices matter and that I am, I sometimes feel that I'm, I'm in charge because there has to be someone in charge. But at the end of the day, I try to create you know, to create in a way and to create a space where collaboration is key, iterative processes is the way we, the way the work is created. Within Rogue, a lot of the, really all the work we do is original and much of it has to do with stories or parts of, parts of our history in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And so that means that we're always working very slowly on a few different things. And so big role that I have as artistic director is just helping to make sure that these projects are nudging forward and that they're getting the support they need and are being nourished. Mm-hmm. So uh, what would you say the mission statement of Rogue Artists Ensemble is? Well, our mission is to create new works of immersive or highly theatrical theater that includes 
representation from the community. Many years ago, we had a conversation that changed the, the company profoundly, and that was that the work the work we were putting up on the stage didn't always feel like the people we saw in our community. And we made some big changes internally to help steer, to help right the ship and move to a much more equitable place. And that to us not only means that the stories we're telling are representative of the community and the diversity of the community, but also the artists on the stage and behind the, you know, behind the scenes are, are also representing that. You know, you mentioned that it's immersive for those who may not be familiar with theater outside of the, the standard stereotype. What what does that mean? Tell me more about what immersive theater is and how that differs from, quote unquote, regular theater. Absolutely. Uh, immersive theater is theater there that there is essentially no separation between the audience and the performance. A lot of times audience members come to the theater. I would say most performances are not immersive. You get your ticket, you sit down you're in the dark and you're protected by this, this invisible line that separates the performance and the audience. And in an immersive piece, that line is eroded and you, the audience, are a character. You are implicated in the action. And the immersive work for Rogue has a requirement that if the audience wasn't there, the play couldn't happen. And so the audience is an essential part of the experience and has to show up and participate. Do you feel like most of your audience realize that's what they're getting into? Or have you had situations where people are like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely we have. But I, more often than not, those people are the ones that have the most exquisite experiences because they're able to come away and have some have experienced something that they didn't know. Uh, you know, they didn't they didn't know that this was something that existed in the world. Immersive theater is not not new by any means. We've been doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's existed. You know, I, I think I think that there's forms of immersive theater that are very old. I think of, um, you know, some of the in, um, in indigenous ceremonies and how, you know, there's a participatory element for all of the people experiencing these ceremonies. Like, this is very old. This is very old. And so I think that there's something inside of us that craves it. And I always feel like, you know, an objective of is to help share a perspective or share an insight into something there is no better way for an audience to experience that than by doing, you know, a actively participating is going to create a much more lasting experience than just sitting there and watching. How do you gauge how much to involve the audience? I mean, I'm sure there are people, you know, who, who are like, don't even get near me. <laughs> what kind of things do you look out to make sure that you're not making it a negative immersive experience? That's a great question. We, we try to always invite and never demand. We also are trying something new with the piece we're working on right now, which is where there's a part in the script that is written in that says, if you would like to be more of an observer and not be invited to actively participate, you can wear this white ribbon that we'll give you to pin on your shirt. And that way for the rest of the evening, the artists know that that's an audience member that wants to be a little bit more, uh, doesn't want to be as in, as integrated into the experience. And the nice thing about that is the audience member, if they choose, hey, you know, I see other people having a good time and this is actually something I would feel comfortable doing, they can just take a white ribbon off and then they're in, in the experience in a different way. So um, we, we spend a lot of time talking about that aspect in our development process and what character the audience plays and how how that functions in the play.
Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of which, you're currently doing stage readings of theater experience that's in development for full production. Tell me a little bit about that and kind of the, the origin of this idea and kind of where it came from and whatnot. Yeah, so the piece we're working on right now is called Schlitzy Alive and Inside the Decaying Sideshow, which is definitely cool. It's based on a real sideshow performer named Schlitzy who is maybe one of the most famous sideshow performers in the history of the the sideshow. One of our ensemble members, Eric Fagundes, who is the playwright of this particular piece, he has long had a fascination with the sideshow. And in doing research of the sideshow, discovered that Schlitzy's story intersected with some interesting moments in Los Angeles history. Schlitzy, in addition to just being an amazing worldwide famous performer, Schlitzy also starred in the Todd Browning film Freaks, which is a cult classic film. Schlitzy also was institutionalized in a county hospital in Los Angeles when the sideshow was shut down. And after being adopted by another sideshow out of the uh, um, institution, Schlitzy then had the last chapter of his life was once again in Los Angeles, where he would perform his act all around the city, but particularly in and around MacArthur Park. And so our play tells the story of Schlitzy and the rise and fall of the sideshow as an American performance tradition and deals with some of the issues surrounding the sideshow. A lot of it having to do with the way that the member, that the community in the sideshow is treated. And, you know, one, one thing people don't often realize about the sideshow is that a lot of the sideshow performers were made up of people with disabilities and that some of them were brought there not by choice. They um, had, you know, complicated life, but for many people, the sideshow was a community and was a way to make a living. Mm-hmm. And when the sideshow was shut down, primarily because some laws that were enacted uh, that had to do with, that really came from a place where people felt uncomfortable watching people that were different than themselves perform, the sideshow started to have a harder and harder time finding communities that could perform in, and then eventually was, was shut down. So now, you know, you still can see the sideshow. You can still go to New York, to Coney Island. It's the, I think it's still, I think it's the longest running sideshow in the country. We've had sideshows here on the West Coast at different times, but unfortunately they're not something you can see actively, but the form is definitely still alive. And we just love that we're able to tell the story and transport the audience into this period that a lot of people don't know much about. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, it's going to be immersive? Yes. So this, this particular reading is an immersive reading, and it's taking place at the Valley Relics Museum, which is in Van Nuys, right at the Van Nuys Airport. <laughs> it's an incredible two airplane hangers full of ephemera from the valley. And so our reading is going to be set in all of the nooks and crannies of this museum. And when the audience comes in, they're going to be moving throughout the museum in different parts of the play read interacting with the performers. We're going to have some puppetry uh, performed in the piece. We're going to have some magic, some sideshow performances. And all of that is with the goal of further developing the piece. So after every performance, we're going to have a talk back where the audience will get to share their response and what they liked and didn't like and help us to keep, keep pushing the piece forward. Awesome. Now, L.A. is not exactly known as a theater town. (laughs) If you ask your average Midwestern people, 
you know, what's what's the theater scene like in L.A.? They'd be like, there's a theater scene. <laughs> so um, how do you feel that impacts your work as a theater person? And, you know, do you feel like you're competing against Hollywood or is that just a whole separate thing that you don't worry about? I I don't think we can deny parts of our community. I mean, Hollywood is a huge part of the city. It's it's a part of our identity. I think um, a lot of the work that Roke has done has been in concert with that understanding. We actually are working on another piece that's about the history of the stunt show. Ooh. And, and it's a, essentially, it's a coming out story told through the modality of a stunt, a stunt performance uh, like you would find in Universal Studios. So a lot of our work actually is incredibly cinematic. I, I think for Rogue, we often like to think of our work as theatrical theater. A lot of us are filmmakers also. And so I think that it, it does a disservice for our internal community to say we aren't a theater community. Right. So like I try to move past that stigma because by the numbers, there's more theater happening in Los Angeles than New York mm-hmm. in terms of individual performances. And we have a, a very vibrant fringe community. I think that we do have a lack of size and large venues here, which I think is a big challenge that we face as a community. And I think nationally, it, there's truth to the fact that much of the work does originate on the East Coast mm-hmm. and then flow West. But I think with Rogue and, and my work, you know, I Los Angeles is such a wonderful and kind of crazy and, and complicated place that I always, I just love to embrace that in the work that we make. Awesome. Now, as a director yourself, kind of describe your directorial style. How do you, uh, and, and how it developed, like from when you first started? Oh, geez. Uh, that's, that's a good, that's a tricky question. I, I have a very keen sense of physicality that, for me, a lot of what I try to do as a director is get down to the essence of a thing. And some of that comes, I think, from puppetry, that with puppetry, you have to be very specific with your physicality. You have to get down to the simplest form of what you're trying to convey. And there's something absolute about puppetry in its pure form that can be so, it's like a rocket to the heart when you see it done well. And I, the same can happen with the theater piece as a whole if you can really make sure that there's that laser focus at every moment. The other piece, I think, is collaboration. I run a really collaborative room. We start every rehearsal with a check-in where everyone goes around the room and shares how they're feeling where they're at. And we end every rehearsal with a checkout. I approach every rehearsal with as detailed a plan as I possibly can but I also have an implicit understanding that that might get thrown away immediately because you might come into the space and a new idea will be, you know, formed. So, uh, yeah, I I hope that gives an idea. Hi, I'm Austin Titchener. I'm Reed Martin, and we are two-thirds of of the the Reduced Reduced Shakespeare Company, Company. and we are geeking out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton. Go Geeks! Want to support the podcast and my website? Be sure to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you use, as well as podchaser.com. You can also support me financially through my coffee account. You can find me there and on various other social media platforms with the handle Angie F. Sutton. Finally, be sure to sign up for my monthly newsletter and see links to my social media and all the places you can listen to this podcast on over at my website, AngieFSutton.com. That's A-N-G-I-E-F-S-U-T-T-O-N.com. And now, back to my interview with Sean Kowalty.
You got your BA in drama with honors in directing. So obviously you have more training as well as on the job training. What would you say has been some of the biggest challenges outside of COVID (laughs) that you face as a director? Gosh, I, I think time is always a challenge. And I think also having the things when you need them and knowing you're going to need them in advance in order to make sure they're there, that's often always a challenge, especially when you're dealing with things that, when you're dealing with like mock-ups and iterative pieces to a production, you start a rehearsal process and you know we, we usually make everything first out of cardboard and tape. And so it's a very crude kind of approach, but then at some point things start to get refined and you figure out what things need to be not cardboard. And so having all of those conversations with not only the folks in the room and with the artists that are performing, but also all of the production folks, I think that's always the biggest challenge and making sure that everyone is getting the time and energy they need to be supported and to be at the step that they need to be. What would you say is the part that you love the most about being a director? I love it when I see an audience come and have have had a reaction to something that is so stupid. There's there's lots of things that we've done as a company where we've made this really simple object and that object then is the emotional heart of the piece. And I think that I think that that magic and being able to to see the audience respond and believe in the thing is what I love the most. Now, on to puppeting specifically, am I wrong to assume or just to note that there seems to be a resurgence in puppetry in in movies and television? That there seemed to be a dip there when CGI was invented and now it kind of people have started realizing, oh, that's puppetry is much better. I, I think I will say talking to my colleagues that are in the film world that build creatures and puppets for films that work has not returned. Uh, It's more present than it was, I think, a few years ago, but it's still nowhere near what it was in the early 80s, you know, early 90s. But I do think that the best films are the ones where there's more care and thought put in how things are being done. And I think that the, the films that the director doesn't just solve everything with CGI, always feels more interesting. And I I don't even think that people that know or are looking for that, I think it it applies to everyone, even if you don't know what you're looking for, that you feel something different when when they have a real dinosaur versus not a real dinosaur. There's there's something different that happens. Now, you know, a couple of years ago, Unfortunately, COVID happened. Uh, theater being a you know industry where you actually have to have an audience there in place, obviously was greatly affected. How did you and and Rogardis kind of deal with with COVID and the the issues that that caused? It really sucked. <laughs> it was you know it, it continues to be hard. When COVID first hit, well, first of all, in January of twenty twenty, we were doing a new piece at the Getty Villa, which at the time we started to hear about the virus, you know, in China, and it was this sort of cryptic thing. And I remember in one of our conversations with the artists, someone brought up, you know, they said, maybe this will be the last show we do for a while. And it felt very prophetic at the, you know, thinking back when the pandemic really was in full swing and we were seeing a lot of our projects, you know, getting canceled or postponed indefinitely. 
and doing some of that our own self because of all the reasons, we had a series of conversations as a company about what we wanted to do. And we, we decided that what we didn't want to do was do readings on Zoom and do performances that were on Zoom because that, although can be very compelling, it is not engaging in the way that a live experience is. And so we put our energy into creating interactive forms of media. So we created a piece called Storage Run that was uh, an experience where you, the audience member, logged in and you um, actually played the character, you played the role of a robot that was stuck in our actual storage unit. And then you could click on the screen and choose different things for the robot to do and could interact and see one of I think we had maybe 40 different performance pieces that were baked into this that you could discover, open a box, and you would find a little puppet show. Open another box, you might see a person dancing on the beach. And uh, it was a way for us to engage our community, to pay our community, to bring some joy to the world. And that was a big undertaking. We also took one of the projects that was canceled and made an app-based project. Mm -hmm. So now if you go to your iPhone or your Android device and you type in Kaidan Project alone, or you can type Rogue Artists, you will be able to download free augmented reality theater experience that you can play in your house. And you can play it for free and have this amazing experience. We partnered with East West Players on that, and we're going to be releasing a big expansion to it in the fall this year. Awesome. So the one show that you're talking about, kind of a combination of, you know, the 360 videos that we see on Oculus combined with like a choose your own adventure book, uh, would you say? Similar. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we filmed it in the storage and uh, we had a puppeteer who rolled around on a little cart and he had a camera on his head that became the POV of robot. And that's how a lot of that was filmed. Great. Awesome. What's next for you and or regardless? I can't talk. <laughs> hmm. Uh, well, with Rogue, we have a couple other projects this year. We're going to be doing another series of Marvel Lab events, which we actually bring in artists and form small collaborative teams so the artists can write a new play. And we're going to be presenting those readings coming up in the fall. We have our uh, updated app launch in the fall as well. And then we're doing a bunch of internal things that aren't going to be publicly facing more reading and more development of Schlitzie and also some more work on Happy Fall, which is the project about the stunt community. And then for me personally, I, I have a long, I actually get a little bit of a break coming up for me, which is kind of exciting. And I have a few projects that I'm going to be working on that mostly have to do with writing, actually. Awesome. Uh, which is going to be hopefully therapy. It's something I haven't done in a while. And my husband and I also bought a house and uh, we have now a Four worth of yard that we're excavating and trying to to get in shape. So now you know you you have a lot of jobs attached to your name. If if you didn't have to worry about money and and paying your bills and whatnot, would you still do? All, I mean, do you like the variety, or is there one that you like more than the others? I don't know. <laughs> Some years I do more than I do more of one thing than the other. I think that they all are. I think of them almost like Siamese twin job titles because they're all connected in a weird way. It's, it's hard for me to extract one. I think the thing I like doing the most is developing new work. And so I, I would say if I could choose anything, I probably would focus on that and helping others to develop their, their projects. 
why should someone do theater in your mind? You know, that's a good question. It has to, has to call you. And I think it sounds so stupid, but no matter how many different forms I personally work in, you know, theater is always a singular experience. There's nothing else that compares to it. And I think that if you are drawn to that and you, especially if you have an idea of what the new form, like what theater for tomorrow is going to be, Mm -hmm. I think that it's really important to keep, keep pursuing it to make sure that this form is alive and that we survive the next, you know, few years and we keep reinventing and pushing what, what it means to tell a story and share a story with the community, with an audience. Mm -hmm. It seems like everyone has that one story of where, uh, where they realized, Oh, this is my new favorite love. And this is, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. Regardless of that. We talked a little bit about your puppetry, but talk a little bit more about that. Like for me, example, it was watching a production of, of mice and men at the local community college. I was unaware of the story outside of the Steinbeck. So I did not know how it ended. (laughs) And my teacher was George and we get to that end scene where they end on the gunshot. And I just remember sitting in the silence and just being like, <laughs> and I just literally could not react. And that was, I was like, okay, this, I've got to always have this be part of my life. Um, tell me your version of that story. I don't know if I can think just one. I will say that I often joke and say everything I learned about the theater, I learned not in the theater. Mm -hmm. And I think that that holds true to me for a lot of reasons. I was totally fascinated with theme parks and with immersive storytelling through that mode growing up. I loved the Ram Tour growing up. I love the scale of it and the way they told a story and put the audience right in the middle of the disaster so much that I actually built my own wagon ride as a kid on elevated wooden tracks around my parents' yard and would build little like disaster scenes with floods and all sorts of things. And uh, so, and I also remember growing up and going to the mall and seeing a puppeteer, a marionette company come through always wanted to peer back behind the scenes that I, th- I found that was more interesting than the show. Sometimes I would say the, oh, the third thing, like more theatrical thing is silly enough Phantom of the Opera. Uh-huh. Uh, I, when I saw that as a young person, it was, it, 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 it just remains a piece that I think it's a piece of theater I've seen the most actually. Mm-hmm. And I always, there's something about the original phantom they changed the design of it a few years ago and Mm. i don't particularly like the changes they made but the original phantom design was so special because they actually had to build into the theater a huge box that contained all the rigging and it was the first time that any theaters had allowed that to happen they had to excavate the floor in some theaters to put this huge machine in Mm -hmm. and the machine had all the mechanics and guts to create the the piece and i loved the magic of it and the way that that the way that it worked. Uh, who would you say are your influences or your go-tos to keep yourself going either as a director or as a puppeteer or just as a general actor? Who influenced you the most? I, I think Robert Wilson was a huge influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love his work. I think there's something incredibly meditative and profound about his work. I, I would say, yeah, Jim Henson, of course. 
I think the way that Jim Henson talked about world building is something that I carry with me every day. Sometimes I'm less interested in what's happening on the stage. I want to I want to talk about where the character goes when they're off stage and what their life is like, because to me that's what informs what we put on the stage. Um, and I think Jim Henson was all about that. He wanted to create a whole world and then just show the audience a tiny piece of that. If you were could time travel to when you were first starting out, what would be the one piece of advice you would give yourself in terms of being in the industry? Take more days off. <laughs> a big new chapter of my life has been, and it came out of the pandemic, frankly, you know, it's this chapter of self-care and how, how do you as a self-employed individual carve out time to, to worry about yourself. And yeah. I think that that was a class that didn't exist. It probably still doesn't exist. I would teach a class called self-care 101 and that would be mandatory for anyone in the uh, arts really one. And then if someone came up to you and said, Sean, I'd, I'd like to, to get into theater, or I'd like to get into puppet making, what would be your, you know, first thing that came to your mind for a tip or a trick or advice? Find someone like and talk to them and find out how to get involved with a company that exists that you like the work of and learn because that's going to help you to know what next steps you need to take. Then uh, before we uh, go to the lightning round questions, um, how can people find you and find Rogue Artists? Uh, we're, we're on the web, uh, rogueartists.org or seanqualty.com. Social media, rogue underscore artists is our social media. And um, yeah. Now, um, back when this uh, podcast was called Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton, I would ask, what are you currently geeking out about? So is there something, a TV show, a movie, a song, a book that you've just really been excited about and talking to everybody you've run into has heard about how much you love this thing? The show on Apple TV about the office which i can't remember the name oh severance was it severance 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 is so addictive oh my god what about it draws you i love i love i love that it is this meditative element i mean there's something very unsettling about it i love the clean like the clean lines the crispness of the design and the minimal like there's just not that many characters in it and so it gives you a you can really Feel, I feel immersed in it. That, mm-hmm. That's why I think I love it. Okay, so when I did rebrand to Contents May Vary, I decided to end on a silly slash high note, and I have a li- a lightning round questions where it's a bunch of silly questions. It's kind of like the Inside the Actors Studio in questionnaire, but more funny. <laughs> so, okay. more silly. So, uh, I have randomized them so they're not in the same order as any uh, previous interview that I've done today. So, start up. Favorite smell? Dirt. Ooh. Favorite meal? Pizza. Uh, Do you have a favorite or lucky number? 13. What is your go-to song to sing in the shower? Um, (laughs) Any, uh, several, there are many songs from Jesus Christ or Avita. Okay. No, no, I can see that. Do you know what you were almost named when you were born? Thomas, I think. Okay. What is your favorite stove burner? Upper left, lower left, upper right, lower right. Uh, we have six burners. Ooh, <gasps> uh, six burners. Yeah, lower left, you have like a 1930s double oven, six <laughs> burner, vintage stove. Uh, I think lower left. Okay. What is your favorite time of day? I like the morning, early morning. 
Would you rather see Captain Kirk become a Jedi or see Luke Skywalker become captain of the Enterprise? The first. <laughs> <laughs> now, th- this is a special theater question. Do you believe Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare? I do, I think. What's your favorite color? Green. Another theater-based one. How do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> if you can't. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite James Bond? Oh, I... No. Do I have was a... named after Sean Connery, actually. <laughs> oh, interesting. I, I should know, yeah. Do you have a favorite Batman? I think the uh, the Tim Burton, the original Batman. Okay, awesome. Favorite drink, alcoholic or non? Margaritas. Okay. Do you have an unusual tradition you or your family have? Yes, we have a, we have a yearly Oscar party where we both have to dress up as the character from a nominated <laughs> film and also bring a food dish that is inspired by a nominated film. Okay, then. If you were a superhero or villain, what power would you want? I think flying, actually. Then I don't have to drive anymore. <laughs> What's your favorite curse word? Fuck, probably. <laughs> when getting dressed and putting on pants, do you button and zip or zip then button? Button and zip. <laughs> do you have a favorite superstition? Uh, especially theater people are known to be superstitious. <laughs> you don't have I, to believe I, I, in no, it. No, but I love, uh, I, I love um, like making fun of, or not making fun, I love like doing the thing I shouldn't do, uh... hoping that something awful will happen. Shame on you. You're going to be cursed. Uh, what's your comfort movie? The Birdcage. Oh, okay. And then finally, who would you want to plague you in the movie about your life? Um, Oprah Winfrey or, or yeah, maybe Oprah Winfrey. Awesome. That is a very good answer. <laughs> or or Whoopi Goldberg, actually. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, have a great rest of your day. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks to Sean Kowalty for taking the time to do this interview. As mentioned, you can find him on his website or the Rogue Artist Ensemble website. If you're interested in donating to Alzheimer's, my fundraising link is, alas, always active and can be found on my website in the show notes for this episode. Thanks also to Reed Martin and Austin Titchener of the Reduce Shakespeare Company for the mid-show plug. You can hear their interview I did in episode 47. My next episode will be another one of the interviews from The Longest Day, writer and animator Jennifer Scheiman from 32nd Bunny Theater and World's End Detective Agency. Also, I've been adding transcriptions to early podcasts on my website to help those who are hearing impaired. Right now it's just the first episode, but you can hopefully see now that many of these interviews were done in the hopes that they would be listened to at any time. This is Angie Fiedler-Sutton. From one-on-one interviews to red carpets and conventions to roundtable discussions, I bring you a little bit of everything. After all, contents may vary. Thanks for listening to Contents May Vary. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Pitnikin, available via the free music archive. More information about the podcast is available on my website, angiefsutton.com. <laughs>